Well, good morning again, and uh, we're going to continue uh, through our series, Cultivating a Spirit-Filled Life, and uh, this morning we're talking a bit, it's in, it's in a few parts actually, we're just going to uh, take three of them uh, from the fruit of the Spirit, uh, love, joy and peace, but the Holy Spirit and the Christian character. Um, you know, character is really important, isn't it? And people will look at us and see uh, who we are as much as who we say we are. Uh, they'll look at our actions as much as listen uh, to our words. So two uh, verses, uh, or a few verses, two passages that I want to just read to you first. Uh, first one, Paul's letter to uh, the Corinthians, so in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And he's talking about us now as much as he was about the people in uh, Corinth. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, You see, we need reliance on the Holy Spirit to change us with ever-increasing glory to become more like Jesus. And then Galatians 5, uh, you'll find the list of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, verses 22 and 23. uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and all the rest of them. We're going to be looking at love, joy, and peace. I did um, uh, toy with the idea of putting an image up there about a a famous detective, uh, but I wasn't sure if that was going to be right. And thought, love, joy, and see if you could have guessed it, but I didn't do it. For exactly that reason, because you'll get a bit of a moan. Anyway, um, when I used to, I used to broke, uh, uh, broken in the city, and uh, when I went to this new firm, uh, one of my tasks, we were, uh, there were various surveys that came out, and our research, you know, buy, sell, hold, was uh, rated number 10 in the city, which is good. Uh, but our sales trading, which is the desk I was brought in to uh, help with, was rated 13th, and you should always be at least as good as your research. It means clients owe you a certain amount of business, and if you're not getting that amount, it reflects badly uh, on my desk. So I was tasked to build a number. Over a number of years, we did well, and I hired people, and they were very good, and we got to number four, which was good. So now we're out punching our research, and it really annoyed me because we couldn't break the top three, and they were all American, which annoyed me even more, and if you're American here, I love you, um, but, um, but I, I, I didn't like being fourth. Um, as a West Ham supporter, you're quite used to not being first. Uh, but, um, but nevertheless, I didn't want to be fourth. So I used to go out and ask clients, what are they doing? The top firm was an American firm called Morgan Stanley, and no one could get close to them. And I used to go out to my clients and say, what are they doing? What are they doing? And they said to me, do you know, the head of their desk gets in at five o'clock in the morning. And I thought, wow, well, I'm not doing that. Um, but I used to get in at 6 o'clock in the morning, but I used to be prepared for the, for the market opening, so I couldn't really work out why they were getting in at 5 in the morning. Then I heard that the whole team there got in at 5 in the morning. So I thought, well, how am I going to compete with these people? They're like workaholics. I'm not, I don't want to you know, burn myself out. Years later, I moved firms, and the head of Morgan Stanley came and worked uh, with me on, on my desk. I wasn't his boss, he wasn't my boss. It was a kind of an even desk. And I said to him all them years ago, we were fourth and you were first. And it really annoyed me. And I asked clients, what, you know, what differentiates you? And they said, oh, you're getting so early to prepare. He said, yeah, it was the strangest thing, Ian. He said, I used to get in at five in the morning. I said, yeah, I know that. The clients told me. He said, but I never did work. He said, the only reason I did that as a young child, and between five and six, that was the time when I did my home admin. But the weirdest thing happened. All, all my team started coming in at five o'clock just because I did. He said, I haven't got a clue what they were doing. <laughs> Ridiculous, isn't it? They followed him like sheep. You see, they looked up to him, and he was a very good uh, sales trader, uh, but they looked up to him, and they followed him, and they spent time with him. And as they spent time with him, they wanted to become like him. 
because he was very highly rated. And when we spend time with people, uh, do you notice you can take on their mannerisms? You ever notice that? I remember when Andy Drake was here, I'd have lunch with him, I'd come out speaking like an Australian. It was really weird. Um, but that's what happens. You kind of take on mannerisms over time. Uh, children take on sometimes the character of their parents, or sometimes not when you really want them to. Leaders uh, inspire and set the ethos of a company. It might be known as an aggressive company because the boss is aggressive. People want to be like the boss. Or friendly, or loving, or a good place to work for. Leaders should inspire and set the ethos of a church. That's why God is so... Um, robust in his word about talking about the character of a leader, not just the gifts of a leader. But of course, our ultimate leader is Jesus. We've said already, he's the head of the church. So he's our leader. He's the one that I want to emulate and that you want to emulate in your lives as we look to cultivate a spirit-filled life, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and your lives as you become more like him. And then he sets the tone for us. And increasingly, the passage says, our character. And this week, as we go about cultivating a spirit-filled life, we're looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in the way that our characters change as we become more like Jesus. The theological term for that is sanctification. Posh word at college they give you to make you sound clever. I'm not. It just means becoming more like Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit that helps us to do that over a period of time. You may not notice it day to day, or you might, but over a period of time you will, you will and others should see a difference in you. As you spend more time with God, whether it's among his church, which I'm going to talk about tonight, as a sacred uh, bunch of people, a sacred place, or in his word, or in prayer, or just simply listening, the Spirit of God transforms you. And you want to be transformed by the Spirit of God, because if you don't, you're going to be transformed by the world and all its various messages. When you drift away from God, and you begin to neglect him and his word, then the world starts to shape you rather than God. The world starts to transform you. That's why we need to cultivate a life with God and his Spirit looking to him to feed us and to nourish us, not necessarily the world. Paul talks about that in another one of his letters, Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you can know God's will. You see, he's saying stay close to God. You've got to stay close uh, to God. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So let's go back uh, to one of these passages, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we, that's us, who with unveiled faces, what does that mean? We're going to have a look in a minute. All reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is spirit. What a fantastic record of what God is doing in the lives of that church in Corinth and in the lives of you now if you allow him. What does unveiled faces mean? Why does Paul write that? He's actually reflecting back to Moses Back in the Old Testament, Moses had spent a significant amount of time with God on Mount Sinai. He's uh, received from God. He's got direction from God. He has teaching from God. He's coming down with the commandments. They're written on stone tablets. I hate when this doesn't work. Oh, there it is. I've done two. That's it. You might not be able to read that. I was trying to fit it on one page. But I'm going to read it to you. 
So, this is, the, this is the story of what happened with Moses in Exodus 34, starting at verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, so God had given him the law, the rules, the regulations, he was not aware that his face was radiant. You see, he'd spent time with God, and it was reflecting off of him. Because he had spoken with the Lord, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. They were, it was so raging, they were afraid. They didn't know what's happening. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a vow over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the vow until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites... What he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Moses' face was radiant. You know, there's time to time I come across people and I know they've spent time with Jesus. They have that air and look about them, a peace that surpasses understanding, which we'll uh, come come on to. But Moses' face was radiant. He spent time with God. People could see that he spent time with God. God's presence was around him. The time with God that he'd had with God had had an effect so profound that he literally radiated God's presence. Imagine if we walked around the streets of Billericay and further beyond with that radiance, where we've spent so much time with God and his closeness, his intimacy. He's filled us so much with his spirit that people would just notice us uh, for who we are. They'd have to ask what's different. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. He's with me now. Can you imagine... That He was so radiant, Moses, that he scared the Israelites. He had to put a vow over his face. They were afraid. But whenever he he uh, came into the Lord's presence, he removed the vow. God wasn't afraid. He removed the vow and he could radiate God's presence back to him. And as we cultivate a spirit-filled life, as we look at our character, uh, we're transformed. We might not get that same radiance that Moses got, but people should see something radiating off us or seeing it in our character. We're being transformed. It's a process. And this is what Paul is speaking about in 2 Corinthians uh, 3, 7 to 18, uh, the glory of the new covenant. And he writes this, Now, if the ministry that brought death, so the law, pointed us towards how really unworthy we are, which was engraved in letters. And he's talking about this time when, uh, of the Exodus passage that I just read. So it was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading came with glory... How much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to to prevent the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. When we're trying to keep all the rules and regulations, we might as well have the veil over our face. We can't do it. For those people, it's not been removed. Because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a vow covers their hearts. But whenever 
anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see the context of it? Moses had to cover his face. He was radiating the glory of the Lord. And Paul says, no, you've got unveiled faces now. You can approach God, and he's going to change you with ever-increasing glory. You, can't, you don't want to be part of the old covenant that leads to, leads to death. We're part of the new covenant. And he says it's only because in Christ that stuff is taken away. We have to put our faith in Christ, not the law, in Christ. He's paid for everything. Amazing. And he doesn't leave us like that. We don't just get salvation, which we're going to talk about around communion. We're saved from the penalty of sin. I can be with him forever if I accept what Christ has done for me on the cross. But he doesn't leave us as we are. That's initiatory. That's ongoing. It's being transformed into his likeness, the work of the Spirit, as long as you cooperate. So we're going to look at uh, some fruit of the Spirit. Galatians uh, 5.22-23 to talks about the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And we can imagine if we really had all those things in abundance, you wouldn't really need the law because you'd just be living out a godly life. So we're looking at love, joy and peace. And we're looking at character in this series of Cultivating the Spirit-Filled Life, uh, before the gifts. And that is deliberate, because we've got to get our character right. If we want the gifts of God, let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us in our character. And Paul highlights that, doesn't he? We're going to look at love, first of all. Why am I looking at love, first of all? Love is the most important thing. Uh, you've heard the saying, love makes the world go round. Some people say money makes the world go round. You look at the world, you think hatred makes the world go round. Hatred gets us into a lot of trouble. Uh, Lack of forgiveness gets into a lot of trouble. There's enough turmoil and strife in the world that the church should demonstrate God's character, which is love. Love. I think the best description of a church uh, would be be called a loving church. Uh, I remember a past minister here said to me, Ian, uh, this doesn't give me free reign to go and do anything I want just because I love you, but he said, "If, if the people know you love them, they'll forgive you anything. But you could do everything right, but they don't think you love them, that you're going to struggle. And I've tried to hold on to that. Not that I'm going off in all sorts of tangents, just because I love you, don't want, you know, I'm going to do anything wrong. Um, But anyway, character before gifts. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, a whole passage, uh, we often use it at weddings, uh, from verse 1 to 13 in 1 Corinthians 13, where he talks about all the gifts, or many of the gifts that are given, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, generosity. But he says, without love, it means nothing. You must have love. Love. It's also the character of God, which I said, God is love. 1 John 4, 8. Whoever does not uh, love does not know God, because God is love. And God takes the initiative in our lives. It's not like we can just drum this up. He gives us the purpose. 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. God loves us so much that if we reflect his character, we will love uh, others. It's the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life will be an increasing love for God and for others. Now, I've got to tell you, you know, I wasn't always such a nice bloke. Uh, I used to be quite angry, and uh, angry at everything, really. Angry at the world, 
uh, angry at West Ham, um, angry at England, uh, the, the football team, not the country, um, angry at lots of things, uh, broken, everything had to be done very, very quickly. I'd get angry in McDonald's if they didn't serve me fast enough. Now I get angry if I find myself in McDonald's because, you know, it's just an ongoing battle. Um, I used to get angry really easy. If somebody cut me up, I mean, Andrew will tell you, even now I'll say, that's not good driving, you know, indicating left, turning right, and she's, oh, you never do anything wrong. And, and, but, but it used to be a lot worse. You know, I wasn't a nice person frankly, before I was a Christian. I'm working on that uh, now, and God helps me. But I was an angry person. I was very quick to criticise. I saw somebody else doing something. They, they'd, I'd be the first one. I wasn't pleasant. Um, and then when I became a Christian, God just started to change me. I realised that he actually loves all these people. I can remember walking down Billericay High Street and just seeing lost faces. And I had a compassion for them. And actually the task seems overwhelming, and it is, if it weren't that God is in control. But over time, the Holy Spirit challenged me and changed me. And now, um, sometimes it comes naturally, other times it doesn't. And that's what cultivating a spirit-filled life is. Sometimes I have to say, I need to plant the right seed. I have to grow the right character. I have to be deliberate about it. But I try and see people as God sees them. And he sees the whole world enough and with love that his son died for all of them. He sees the whole world that the Bible says it's God's uh, will that everybody would be saved. Not all the people I like. Well, them as well, obviously. But, but even the people I don't think deserve it. But I'm not God. He is. The gospel is for everybody in here. And the Bible's clear. It's only by one name you can be saved. Anything else is false. And we can say any other religion, we respect them, they're false, in my opinion. Because the Bible says Jesus is the only way. Only one Only by one name can people be saved, Jesus. Anything else that distracts us from that, so we come up to Halloween, all the supernatural, all the occult stuff, distraction, falsehood, drawing people away. Only Christ and his cross can get us saved. And then he changes us and changes me from an angry person, all the other stuff that went on, to something to become more like him. And it should be part of mine and your identity. 1 John 3.18, God has... God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he has given us. It starts with God. It should be in our DNA to be the most loving people on this earth. So as we go through this series, I challenge you, or God would challenge you, make sure your character uh, shows love. Seek to develop that love inside of your nature. There's There's enough strife and turmoil. The Christian is called to love. And then show love in action, doing good, being good, being good to others, being merciful. Show love when it's not even deserved. Because that's what God gives you. You don't deserve it. He gives you it. It's a gift. That's grace and mercy. The second one, uh, joy. So we've done love and joy. Joy, joy is, a, is, a, is a, well, I was going to say a funny word. It's not a funny word. Uh, it's a good word. But it doesn't mean necessarily happiness that I should always be happy. I think this is one of the lies we sell our kids, that life is rosy and you never come across any problems. And if you do, we'll sort them out for you. Actually, sometimes life is tough. And it's okay to give lessons in that. Otherwise, they get to work. And when something happens, I spoke about that this last Sunday evening when I was looking at peace. Um, they get to work and they think, oh, you know, the boss spoke nastily to me. That's all, it's wrong, but that's life. And you've got to be able to deal with it. So you're not always happy. Right? But joy is a state of mind. And it's joy. I mean, God never, ever promises happiness. He actually says you're going you know, to have turmoil and uh, people are going to say nasty things about you and you're going to be persecuted. 
But joy is, is, a, is a state of mind in spite of those things. It's not relying on the outward circumstances, but from the spirit within. Psalm uh, 4, 6-7 says, Many are asking, who can show us any good? We're always looking for the good stuff. Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy. Some of the people I've seen with the most joy, the people who have the least. You know, when they have the least, they have the least to worry about. Now, I'm not talk, I don't want to talk myself poor. But Jesus does say, blessed. You know, we, and we're called to serve the poor. And, but when I've gone to other countries where uh, I went, particularly India, where I went once, and, and people, there's a lot of people, they really had next to nothing. They had more joy than I see in English churches. They loved God. And they were just satisfied with what they had. I wouldn't say they were happy all the time, but they had joy. Amazing. A difference from being happy all the time is this inner joy. Do you know, I was once told um, that I'm too bullish, too upbeat, and I smile too much. Can you believe that? You know, I was. Anyway, but I've got to tell you, that's not always the case. Andrew will tell you at home, I can be, oh, you know, what's going on? Thank God we've got God. I don't know what I'm doing, or this is not working the way we wanted it to work. But I try and cultivate that joy. I try and cultivate that joy despite the circumstances. And I don't get it right all the time. I can tell you I'm not always bullish or, or full of smiles or anything else. I can cry. I can get nostalgic like the best of them. Happened to me this week. Came home, floods of tears. Andrew had to give me a cuddle. And, um, you know, silly, something silly just set me off. But I try and have that positive attitude because I believe God is a positive God and I know that he'll see me through. Joy follows love and comes by staying close to the Lord. John 15, 9 to 11, words of Jesus. He said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He's saying these words, getting ready to be crucified. And he's saying, I want my joy in you. Amazing. Amazing. So cultivate joy. Oh, it's all on the same slide, isn't it? Peace. Peace is our last one. I spoke about this at length last Sunday evening. You can go on the website, or if you want my notes, I'll give them to you. Um, it's worth, it's worth a li- I thought it was worth a listen. Uh, you may not. But peace. You know, you've got love, joy, and peace. This is what we're handling this morning. Nothing is worth anything if you don't have peace. You can have all the money in the world, all the fame, all the success, but no peace. You can be rich, but you can be in spiritual poverty. It's not about things. It's all about being. Romans 14, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not about food or drink, like things, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We can only get that with our relationship and by abiding in Christ. Otherwise, it's shallow. John 14, 27, as Jesus talks, and he's getting ready to leave his disciples. And this is what I focused on last week on Sunday evening. Peace, I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I really took that passage apart last Sunday evening. I'm really trying to plug the the, the website. Go on the website and have a listen because I can't get into it all today. But he's not giving to us as the world gives. Our health will fail. Our finances could fail. Our friends might fail. God never fails. He doesn't give to us as the world gives. He, He promises to give you his peace despite circumstances. The word that we can really refer back to is a Greek word, and the Hebrew equivalent is shalom. 
Uh, shalam means like a wholeness. It's very difficult to translate a soundness of mind, a, a feeling of well-being despite the outward circumstances, a oneness with God even when things are going wrong. It doesn't rely on circumstances because circumstances can disappoint. And again, it comes with that closeness uh, of what we receive when we come close to God. In Philippians 4 verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Love, joy and peace. You've got to cultivate these things. So go out from this place uh, this morning and be determined. Cultivate it. Plant the right seeds. Get rid of the negative thoughts. Get rid of the, the, the not so much hatred but the discord and everything else and love and receive joy and have peace because that's what the Holy Spirit promises. I'm going to ask the band to uh, come back up and uh, they'll just play for a bit and I'm just going to pray over you And uh, when Christine's ready, she'll lead us in worship as we approach communion. As you cultivate this spirit-filled life, really be determined. Go and look at Galatians 5. Look at the fruit of the spirit. um, And be determined to cultivate that. Let's be a loving church. I think we're, we're, we're not a bad church. We're a good church. Let's be even better. And we can only do that with the help and work and passion of the Holy Spirit. So I'll ask the band just to play quietly and then I'm going to pray um, over you.